Hello, and welcome back to False Start. It's me again, your host, Cody Williams. John Bueller remains MIA, and by MIA, I mean in Europe. But I am joined once again by Fansided.com Associate Editor, Alicia D. Artola Castillo. Alicia, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, you know, it's another day in paradise in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as I, you know, just live this ranch style life, I guess. I don't know. Something in the <laughs> desert. But I I mean, you know, with the week four slate that we have in college football, it's hard to have a bad day right now because it's exciting what we have coming up on deck. I mean, there are if I'm if I'm counting correctly, which is, you know, always a hit or miss proposition. There are six ranked on ranked matchups this week, and that does not include Florida State versus Clemson, which, you know, spiritually is a ranked on ranked matchup, especially with the game being in Death Valley. And for first and 15, that's obviously where we have to start is these big matchups. But rather than going through, you know, game by game and going through all of them, I kind of wanted to gauge both of our interest in which of these games have your attention the most and so i'll start by asking you alicia of these games you know the ranked on ranked matchups that we have this week that are going to be you know stealing headlines all throughout saturday and even after this weekend which one has your attention the most and obviously why for me it starts with ohio state notre dame i am so pumped for this game i think that we're going to learn so much about two teams that are potential national title contenders, certainly college football playoff contenders. And both teams were looking at them and have question marks for Ohio State. It's question marks about their start to the season, Kyle McCord, whether or not they can live up to things. For Notre Dame, it's question marks of, are they really this good? Is is this real? Like They've looked really good in the first few weeks of the season. What happens when they play a a potentially top-tier opponent? So that's the uh, forever that, question with Notre Dame, I think. So <laughs> it really is. It really is. And I have I have some things to say about that that will come up later in the show. But uh, to me, that's the the matchup of the weekend. I, there's a lot of matchups of the weekend potentially. There's there's one in every time slot. To be fair, but that's the one that if if you boiled it down and said you can only watch one of these games this weekend, that is the one that I would pick. Uh, and then I'm going a little bit more dark horse for my second pick. Okay. Uh, because, like I said, there are a million great games. I'm going to have eyes on Oregon, Colorado. I'm going to have eyes on Clemson, Florida State. But for me, I think Utah-UCLA is a really, really mm-hmm. underrated matchup in the Pac-12. And a week kind of full of underrated matchups in the Pac-12 because Oregon State-Washington State is not going to get the love that it deserves. But that game right. will be fun. The Pac-2 Utah- matchup there. The Pac-2, you know? yeah, the Pac-2. <laughs> but Utah-UCLA is sneakily a Pac-12 championship implication game. Yeah. Uh, UCLA has looked good through the first few weeks. Dante Moore looks like a like a quarterback. Chip Kelly looks like he has not necessarily skipped a beat from where UCLA was last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still waiting for them to take another step forward. And this will be a, a game where they can help they can maybe prove that they're capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to Utah, We've talked about USC, we've talked about Washington, we talk about Oregon as Pac-12 contenders. You will not convince me that Utah is not a Pac-12 contender until I see it with my own eyes with Cam Rising in uniform. 
And yeah. guess who's potentially going to be in uniform on Saturday? The Brett McMurphy was uh, was sort of hinting that he thinks that it's going to happen because the line is moving in Vegas. Yeah. Cam Rising's Utah against UCLA. I have so much to learn about both of those teams. Is Cam Rising a, the same quarterback that he was pre-ACL? Uh, is UCLA capable of going on the road in a tough environment and winning a game? Because if they are, then start to look at UCLA as a potential threat to a USC or an Oregon or a mm-hmm. Washington. There's a lot going on with that matchup, and I don't think people are going to have eyes on it necessarily, but like that one, sneaky, sneaky, sneaky good. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I'll start with the Utah-UCLA matchup. I'm really excited for that one, too. And, you know, it's probably, I mean, if we're being honest, it's probably going to get relegated to third screen because it's on the same time as Colorado, Oregon, and yeah. Ole Miss, Alabama, which is unfortunate for them. But I'm I'm with you. I think it's a really interesting game. I You have you have some Pac-12 scars with your USC fandom that I I'm do. sure color your Utah uh, perceptions there a little bit. I am very dubious of this Utah team with or without Cam Rising, specifically in this game. I don't think that they have the same level of skill position players that they've had uh, in recent years on this team. And even if Rising does play, he hasn't played since January 1st in a competitive football game when he got hurt in the Rose Bowl towards ACL. And I mean, you know, even if he's a, you know, full bill or clean bill of health, 100% ready to go. He's not going to be 100% Cam Rising, even if he does get there by the end of the season. In this game, he's not going to be. And I think Dante Moore is the real deal. I've watched this kid, and like I was skeptical coming into the season. Like I knew he was a highly touted recruit, but I didn't know if he was going to be the goods. And Chip Kelly is putting him in very advantageous positions, but he's delivering on a big level. I understand Rice Eccles is you know, a very tough place to play. There's a home winning streak with Utah's going on. So I get that, you know, maybe I'm being a little too contrarian and ignoring a lot of factors here, but I think UCLA wins this matchup, even though they're not favored in it. And, but I'm excited to see how it plays out. And for Ohio State Notre Dame, I, this is the first time that I think in a long time that I have less questions about Notre Dame than I do (laughs) about Ohio State. Um, I still... I, I, you know, had a little Mia culpa on Monday when I was doing the solo show about uh, picking Western Kentucky as an upset special against Ohio State last week. That was a real whiff by me. But I think that says more about Western Kentucky and my idiocy than it does Ohio State. I have questions about this defense. And I think Sam Hartman in this Notre Dame offense and specifically Audric Estime can really put some of those questions to the test. I also think that it's going to be a fascinating game. It's going to be a telling game for both of these teams but i also think that it might be kind of ugly i think that there's a real chance that the both defenses are the best units on the field and so like i mean last year this game was 21 10 with a lot more offensive talent and proven talent for ohio state and i think both defenses are better than they were last year so yes i don't know i but it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to see um my first game that I'm excited about is that is the I mentioned it earlier, Ole Miss Alabama. Um, and call it morbid curiosity with Alabama. We talked the last time you were on the podcast, we talked about the demise of Nick Saban, the demise of the Alabama dynasty. They're going back to Jalen Milrow for this game. And I I've been thoroughly impressed with someone who you're very familiar with, Jackson Dart. I think mm-hmm. he has leveled up 
I, you know, I've got, I went back and I watched the Tulane game and I watched the Georgia Tech game last week and he is leveled up in a way that I didn't really think. Like he is playing composed football in a way that I didn't think he really had in him and playing within this offense that is obviously high powered with Lane Kiffin and Charlie Weiss Jr. And I'm curious to see if I know Lane Kiffin's going to come out and he's going to have some stuff dialed up on script early in this game, but. I'm curious to see how he adjusts because it's Lane Kiffin and his adjustments versus Alabama are kind of always the story in this matchup. And on the flip side, uh, Ole Miss's defense, their secondary is not anything to write home about, but they've been getting home in terms of pass rush. And I'm curious to see how Milrow handles that and also how the Ole Miss defense with Pete Golding coaching now, who's obviously intimately familiar with the at least maybe not the offense per se, because obviously Tommy Reese wasn't there when Golding was there. But, you know, what what Alabama has to offer in terms of talent and, you know, if he's like coaches rush lanes to limit Milrow's ability to take off and run and scramble, which is his best ability right now as a quarterback. So I just think it's a really fascinating matchup that we're we're going to find out if either of these teams are for real. And there's a chance that we come out of this thinking oh, both these teams are kind of mid, you know? <laughs> yes, so. that's always one of the risks of these ranked-on-ranked matchups. It's like, are is either team good or are they just both like, eh, maybe these are both the numbered number, what is it, uh, 10 and 13 teams in the country, whatever. Yeah, uh, it's it's the meme, you know, they're having a mid-off. Like, that, there's, yeah. there's, you run that risk. Um, and the other game, you, also, you mentioned this one earlier, but I, and I also... Uh, said, you know, it's not a ranked on rank matchup, but Florida State Clemson, it has my attention, especially after we saw Florida State almost get caught in that look ahead spot last week against Boston College um, in the, you know, late in the third quarter quarter and in the fourth quarter, they looked like they were trying to get to Death Valley, not necessarily yeah. uh, worried about Boston College. But I think the fascinating part about this one is definitely Clemson. I think I have a pretty good grasp on what Florida State is. If you're a team like Ohio State in terms of receiving talent and skill position talent, you can really take advantage of this Florida State team. These def- The defensive backs in the secondary, they haven't come around as quickly as I think Mike Norbell or any Florida State fan would have wanted them to, but I'm not sure Clemson's that team. Uh, Cole Turner's not playing in this game. Bo Collins and Antonio Williams are good, not great players, and... I don't think I think Clemson's secondary is also improved, and I think Florida State can fully take advantage of that. And I'm curious to see if Clemson under, especially with Garrett Riley in this offense, starting to seemingly against inferior competition, no doubt, but seemingly starting to coalesce a little bit. Uh, I'm curious to see if they can take advantage of the biggest weakness for Florida State. So I, I mean, and that's obviously a matchup that you know we could see again in the ACC championship game, but not if Clemson loses this because that'll give them two an O and two ACC start. So, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled for all four of the matches we talked about, but <laughs> those are the two I'm highlighting for sure. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with Florida State and Clemson. That, that's a really just, if nothing else, extremely intriguing because we don't know how much to buy into either team. Yeah, And I, I agree with you. I think I'm more bought into Florida State, but Clemson's also, Clemson's that team that last year looked to me like, like, horse crap the whole year and then they yeah. were 10 and 2 so it's like it's not their their level of of wow Clemson might be bad is still not to a level that they couldn't compete with a Florida State team that's out here playing was playing good football before they ran into Boston College uh, and the as circumstances that, that I mean yes 
But as a USC fan, I am intimately aware of of the weirdness that happens on Red Bandana Night. So right. I'm I'm slightly inclined to give Florida State a little bit of a pass. Yeah. Uh, but with with Clemson, it's interesting because like SP Plus still has Clemson ranked ahead of Florida State, and mm-hmm. those those rankings are are you can't trust them this early in the season because they are very dependent on last year's data. Mm-hmm. But that is still a little bit of a sign that these teams might be a little bit more evenly matched than right. their records or the quality of their wins so far this year. So that I'm I'm definitely gonna have my eyes on that one to to learn a lot. And yeah, Bama Ole Miss, it's all about Jalen Milrow for me. I, yeah. I do, it's it's and it's not even about Jalen Milrow. It's just like, is any quarterback capable of of leading this Alabama team? Right. And if Jalen Milrow was your guy, why didn't he play against USF? Like I have a million questions for Nick Saban and uh the Pete Golding element of it is is one that wasn't on my radar until like sem- like yesterday. I, I I saw that and I was like, oh right, that's co- yeah. Pete Golding yep. is their defensive coordinator. He knows Jalen Milrow because he practiced against him week in week out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows the 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 dudes that Alabama has for the most part because he practiced against them week in week out. So I don't know that one. That one uh, is going to be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, so I have heard some stuff, uh, you know, in the dark places of the internet where college football minds tend to wander. Um, there's like, there's rumors that it was a soft suspension for Milrow because they were considering starting Butner to give him a look and like splitting reps and practice and stuff like that. And he apparently uh, did not handle that well. Oh, uh, okay. That makes so much more sense than yeah. than any other explanation I could have come up with. So, especially after what we saw from Buckner and Simpson against USF, I mean, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Like, <laughs> but uh, so one matchup that we did not have on there, and I think I have a good a good read on why is because we think probably Oregon's going to end the Colorado hype train a little bit this week. Um, It's still going to be fascinating to watch. Don't get us wrong. Like, no matter which way this goes, like, if Colorado upsets Oregon, the internet might be, like, it might break. Like, who knows? Like, and, I mean, and if Oregon beats the hell out of Colorado, it also might break. Like, any way this game plays out, it's going to be a big deal. And everything, and that really goes into Colorado, and the hype train around them has gotten – it's honestly unlike anything I think we've ever seen in college football. And, like, we've had, like, teams that, you know, capture the attention. Like, 2019 LSU is probably a good recent example where everyone's just, like, marveling at it. But this is something different. This is a cultural thing where we're re- that we're really seeing in Colorado. And we also saw the downside of that this past after the Colorado state game um, coach prime came out and called out Colorado so-called Colorado fans because they were sending death threats and doxing Henry Blackburn, the safety from Colorado or Colorado state who delivered the late hit on Travis Hunter injured Travis Hunter. He's not going to be able to play in the Oregon game or for a few more weeks. And these so-called fans were basically I don't know, acting ways that I truly can't comprehend as a rational human being. And Coach Prime called about and said that he forgives them, the Colorado team forgives them, Travis Hunter forgives Blackburn, and that these fans need to just basically go home and shut up. But I think it speaks to a larger thing of 
we've not seen something like this that has such a cultural impact the way Coach Prime's Colorado has so quickly, too. And I think that's the other key is, like, it's been a rapid ascension. As soon as they upset TCU, it was they're everywhere and they're, no one can get enough of them. And so we're going to play a little Du Haas with Du – and Du Haas or Du Haas with this. For those who aren't familiar, we're still a pretty new podcast. Du Haas with one S means you have me, and Du Haas with two S means you hate me. And so it's a little, you know, like, don't like, buy or sell type of deal. So, Alicia, Du Haas or Du Haas, the cultural phenomenon of Colorado and whether or not that's good for college football. Oh, man. I am <laughs> I am so, so torn on, on this, to be quite honest. Du Haas with one S excitement and enthusiasm and people flocking to watch college football to experience college football to the sit you know the boulder atmosphere to mm-hmm. filling that stadium du host to all of that du host with two s's to the irrationality that is yeah. also followed and th- here's my read on it Dion has brought a lot of like college football casuals to the table. And it's very easy to get drawn in to Dion because he's such a big personality and and everything about Colorado is, 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 is sort of cranked up to, to 100. And I am not a gatekeeper. Uh, I, I actually really dislike the concept of bandwagon fans. I dislike the idea of that we see in, in sports, particularly college football, where, where, where people judge fans who are drawn to the sport by the new shiny thing, because yes. how else is somebody supposed to become a fan of a thing? If not right. getting drawn in by the new shiny thing, like that's how you build lifelong fans by mm-hmm. embracing the, the, the bandwagon people, quote unquote. So I don't want to be like the gatekeeper or anything like that, but I do worry that there are a lot of casuals who don't, maybe understand the college football of it all mm-hmm. that there is that culturally is very different from the pro sports of it all and like death threats and all that kind of stuff is a problem in sports in general yeah i'm in college football we've seen kickers get that kind of treatment we've seen other people get that kind of treatment so like it's not i'm not trying to make this out to be like a colorado thing or a Deion sanders fans thing or anything like that like this is a thing yeah but, uh, correct but I think that there is an element to um, a lot of people not understanding inherently that college football is still the amateurs game. Mm-hmm. And I don't give a crap about NIL. The vast majority of players that we watch on Saturdays are putting their health and well-being on the line on Saturdays for very, very, very minimal monetary gain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are by and large kids uh, by and large guys who are going to have to go pro in something other than sports. And we need to be treating them as such. Like my policy has always been don't, don't tweet at players full stop. And if you do tweet at players (laughs) only be positive. If you are tweeting at somebody negatively, like get off of Twitter. Like I can't, I can't with you. Um, But it, it just, it just feels like everything about Dion and everything about Colorado is cranked up to the degree where um the 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 praise is cranked up 
the vitriol yeah. on the other side is cranked up. Like there's extremes all over the place. And that's why I'm doing 2S Duhast here because extremism as a concept is something I do not appreciate and I do not like. And that is the the sort of downside of a a lightning rod kind of figure coming in and and causing these sort of these sort of things. Like we have had lightning rods in college football before. Like Lane Kiffin is is one yes. certainly who stands out. But even that felt like the scale of it was so much smaller that it didn't feel like it was enveloping everything else that's going on in in the sport. So yeah, I'm it's it's tough because Dion is also bringing a ton of excitement and you can see it in the in mm-hmm. Colorado. There's just a there's always a dark side to to these things. There really is. And I hmm I've actually waffled back and forth on this multiple times kind of like you I feel like and I probably land on Duhas with 1S at the end of the day. I think that what Dion said in addressing the situation was actually super important yes. because I think when you're bringing in these, like you said, casual cultural fans who, you know, they'll watch the game if they're over at their buddy's house, but like, they're not you and me where we're glued in front of the television for 12 hours or 12 hours plus mm-hmm. um, on every Saturday. And so like, they don't understand the there's a lot of fans who don't understand. Like you talk about Lane Kiffin being a lightning rod. He was a lightning rod for college football. A lightning rod culturally is different. And when everything is cranked up to 11, like you said, that there's a natural inclination from these, from a fan base to also crank everything up to 11, which has, like you said, the dark side of these death threats, these things like that. And so I think Dion addressing that and being like, look, I understand that I'm a showman. I understand that we're building not just a college football program, but I mean, let's call it what it is, a brand, you know, Mm -hmm. they're rebuilding the Colorado brand into something that college football, frankly, has never seen before. But at the end of the day, this is a violent game. Travis Hunter even said so on, I believe it was his Twitch stream. He was like, they, someone asked him about it in his comments and he was like, I mean, I play football. Like, that's what happens. Like, sometimes you get hit and it hurts. And he goes, thank God for the doctors because I was trying to go back out there and play. So, like, (laughs) these kids understand the risks that they're taking on. And, like, there's in every level of football, there are going to be dirty hits, late hits. And it's going to happen. But that type of reaction is not okay. And Dion addressing that, I think, like I said, is super important because – it takes the the mouthpiece of all of this that has created all this that has brought this cultural phenomenon around and it gives it it gives the people who are following that and think that everything about it and being a Colorado fan new or old being cranked up to 11 it doesn't apply to every aspect of that fandom like you can you know enjoy Lil Wayne the rock offset all these people on the sidelines and understand that like this is something different but not like taking it too far like and that's one thing I will say about Coach Prime, whether you love or hate him, A, he's a good coach who seems to care about his kids. Yeah. And also he cares about the sport of college football and the sport of football as a whole to the degree that he doesn't – like even if he's trying to build a brand to – I mean, he's building a brand to help his football team. Like let's not mistake that. Like 
if there's a transfer in the portal next year, do you not think they're going to want to come to Colorado to where they're going to get watched by 11 million people every week? Like, yeah. that's something that's going to be enticing. That's why you build this brand. And it's we've never seen it in this at this magnitude, but that's why he does it. But being able to separate that, uh, you know, turning it up so high and being a showman from the traditional aspects of college football, Coach Prime's done a really, really good job of that. And I think it's important that he said what he said, but also continues delineate, like drawing that line of delineation between those two things. Yeah. And he didn't have to say, he didn't have to come out and be as sort of um, direct about mm-hmm. that whole thing. He he really could have just let it let it slide by. Yeah. And that is something that I do appreciate because one of the th- I mean in the world today we see people who are who are in the business of of riling up people for for profit and for for brand and all of this kind of stuff. And one of the things that's very frustrating is that they don't seem to take responsibility for what the consequences of that might be. Correct. And even worse, when there's pushback, they or when something negative happens because of it, they dig their feet in and go like, well, it's not it's not us like it's it, that's a you problem, like, you know, p- d- deflecting yeah, or, ignore like, it, or ignore or it ignore too. it or, or just like and just let it let it sort of go by. So Dion addressing it directly, making it very clear that this was not this was this is not the sort of standard. The, this is not the opinion of the Colorado football program. This is not what right. they stand for, or what they're going to be uh, be sort of. Uh, on board with i agree with you with you there for sure it's very important that he said that you have to give him all the credit in the world for stepping up and saying that and this is one thing that i've taken away from from watching dion now for you know a a few the 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 months that we that we've seen him like there's coach prime who is the personality the brand all that kind of stuff but we also see a lot of dion sanders and we get absolutely it's it's actually really refreshing when you strip away a little bit of the of the glitz and the glamour and you get a glimpse of like the man mm-hmm. and you you have to appreciate when you get when you get that that glimpse that shows like you said like this isn't all just a caricature this is right understands the magnitude of the of of what it is that's you know that he's holding in his hands no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think a, I saw a video clip. Um, I'm actually not sure where it came from. Um, in terms, like it was, it was a Twitter account that like reposts a lot of videos, but I don't remember like the actual source of what where the interview came from. But he was talking about in the Colorado State game that Jimmy Horn was having a really bad game, and he brought him over to the sidelines, gave him a hug, and basically told him, you know, look, you've been through a lot in your life. Your father's incarcerated, but your father's what they're watching right now. And make your dad proud. And, of course, it was Jimmy Horn that caught the game-tying touchdown that sent the game to overtime. And, like, that's a Deion Sanders moment. That's not a Coach Prime moment. And so I think that's a really good point, like, you know, drawing the separation between those two. And I think that he needs to – the one thing I will say he needs to do a better job to really give my one S to host, uh, (laughs) you know, some more oomph behind it is – giving us more of that Deion Sanders. And um, because I think when we do, it's really valuable, not just for, I honestly, I think it's valuable for the brand in as a whole, but I also think it's valuable to avoid future situations like the one we saw develop with Blackburn and Colorado state. Yeah. So 
obviously with Shador Sanders, with, I mean, basically this entire Colorado roster, um, they're even having success for all after they won one, the program won one game a year ago. They're, ha- they're three and oh now. And so much of it has been done and so much has been publicized with Deion Sanders and coach prime building it through the transfer portal. And the transfer portal obviously is just a huge, I guess, debatable topic right now in college football. Um, I personally like it. You know, these kids are, they've been at a disadvantage for in terms of financially and movement wise for so long. Uh, I mean, I'm probably a little bit biased right now because I'm a North Carolina fan and, uh, you know, free Tez, Devontae Walker, (laughs) not being able to play right now. Um, But I wanted to ask you in the non-Colorado edition, because obviously the Colorado transfers have had an unbelievable impact on the program and elevating them to heights. I don't think anyone even expected to immediately, but looking around the rest of college football, what would you say has been the most impactful transfer that we've seen through the first three weeks of the college football season? For me, it's a it's a very clear answer. It's Sam Hartman. Mm. And it's a it's it's a giant parentheses of how did the rest of college football allow Sam Hartman to end up at Notre Dame? Like right. that it's <laughs> wild that Sam Hartman got went from Wake Forest to Notre Dame. The I think the thing that is so clear to me that makes it even more clear to me is look at what Notre Dame was working with before at quarterback. Tyler Buckner goes five of 14 for 34 yards for Alabama against UCF. Drew Pine, who was their primary starting quarterback last year after Buckner's injury, goes five of 13 for 52 yards with two interceptions and two fumbles lost for ASU against Fresno State. Those were the options at quarterback for Notre Dame last year. Yeah. It, It just sort of highlights that Notre Dame with a really strong quarterback is an extremely dangerous program. And the thing about Notre Dame, if you look back at the last, you know, 20 years now, they haven't been very good at quarterback since Brady Quinn. It's just been a revolving door of like, is he any good or maybe not? Is he any good or maybe not? Uh, And I think there's a correlation there between Notre Dame's reputation for not winning games against ranked opponents, for having such a poor record in in the bigger games, and the fact that in most of those matchups, I would argue that they didn't have the advantage at quarterback. Yeah, oh, 100%. (laughs) Yeah, like it's you look back at a lot of those games and you're like, okay, well, who was Notre Dame starting? And it's like, Tyler Buckner against Ohio State, <laughs> like Ugh. no wonder they lost. They didn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. So going, it's fitting that we're asking this question going into this big matchup for Notre Dame and Ohio State. Definitely. Because Sam Hartman, to me, gives them a legitimate, Sam Hartman is the better quarterback in that matchup, mm-hmm. without a doubt, going against Kyle McCord at this at this stage of his career. That's not something Notre Dame has been able to say for for a while, uh, or or not that often. And I look back, like twenty twenty one is a really good example. Uh, Notre Dame goes eleven and two in twenty twenty one with Jack Cohn at quarterback, and he was the best quarterback they've had in probably the last handful of years. So, and Sam Hartman's a way better quarterback than Jack Cohn. So oh my like, god, it's night and day. Yeah. yeah. So it just to it Sam Hartman is a cheat code for Notre Dame that is legitimately making me worry about Notre Dame in ways that I don't like having to worry about Notre Dame, to be quite honest. 
I mean, I, I totally get that. I mean, as you know, they're a USC rival, but they're also a pseudo ACC school. So I think we both yeah. have the similar <laughs> concerns about Notre Dame. Um, so I obviously I think Sam Hartman's the runaway answer with this, but I I had a feeling you might say Sam Hartman, so I went a little uh deeper deeper down the board. Um, higher in the rankings though, I have a sneaking hunt or sneaky hunch that AD Mitchell might be a transfer that people are kind of underrating how important he is for Texas. Uh, I was I be frank with you, I was surprised when he transferred. Uh, it was in January, and I mean, he you know he barely played last year for Georgia because of injury. When he did play, he was very good because he's a very good football player, very good wide receiver, and he transfers to Texas. And my my first initial thought when I saw that's where he was heading was, wasn't well, he kind of redundant of Xavier Worthy? They're both okay. speed demons, like they're both speed guys. They're going to take the top off the defense, but I think it actually works out perfectly for this offense. Like we saw Quinn Ewers struggle a lot last year with explosive plays throws uh, 20 yards plus. Like he just, he didn't have it and it's not an arm strength issue. The kid has a cannon for an arm and it not a lot of times it wasn't even a placement issue. It was just kind of the play didn't develop the way it was supposed to. And I think a lot of that came down to Xavier worthy, when teams were able to recognize situations where the you know the shot play might be coming, you can bracket him. And Xavier Worthy, although physically talented, he's a very hot or cold player, very much so. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I think adding AD Mitchell to this offense allows a Xavier Worthy to not demand as much attention from a defense because you also have to respect the speed of AD Mitchell as a deep threat on those shot plays. And also, it simply just gives them another shot play option to open up the field for Quinn Ewers so he can he can showcase his talent as a quarterback. I've been high on Texas all year, but I think even – and, like, I – obviously the A.D. Mitchell addition uh, was part of that, but I think I even underrated that after watching this offense, sp- specifically against Alabama secondary, where it was – essentially uh okay Alabama pick your poison if you focus on Mitchell we're going to worthy if you focus on worthy we're going to Mitchell and it adds a lot of versatility and adds a lot of you know just threats to this offense that I I think even I being high on Texas coming into the season underrated I I love that you bring Mitchell up in this because when you introduced this this question it was a you know the transfer portal is is controversial controversial but I think you and I are both on the same page about the transfer portal and the AD Mitchell transfer is one of the reasons why I like the portal, because I think a lot of people thought the portal is just going to make the rich richer. But yeah. What it actually does is take the sta- you know, the richness that that teams like Georgia or Alabama or you know the big hitters, the the big the big uh, recruiters, and spread the wealth a little bit. Because if a dude's not content with his station. Uh, at, at at the school for whatever reason, he can go somewhere else and be a star mm-hmm. somewhere else, and that's not going to work out for some guys, but it is going to work out for others. And like even you know, I, I'm I'm the USC person over here. Like, if USC's defense does turn out to be legitimately significantly better this year, 
Bear Which is Alexander, a low bar, to be clear. I, I'm uh, my bar is extremely low. Cody. I just need them to be a top fifty defense. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for the moon. A hundred percent. But if they are like Bear Alexander leaving Georgia to go to USC is a huge factor for that. So yeah, I I one hundred percent agree that that Texas having an additional weapon makes all the difference, even just one, even just one guy who can be out there and be a threat to take the the attention off of someone like Xavier Worthy, the entire passing offense gets that much better because Xavier Worthy can do more and A.D. Mitchell can do more and both of them can do more together. And it's a whole thing. So, yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And this is this is part of the fun of seeing these guys transfer because... Yeah, we get to see an individual make that kind of impact on a team that could make a national title run, in part because they added the right players in the transfer portal. No, hundred percent. And another thing I I meant to add earlier, but I didn't. I forgot to say was you know you have two deep threats. You know who that opens up the middle of the field for maybe the best tight end in college football, Jatavion Sanders. Yeah. So like, <laughs> or sorry, second best, Brock Bowers. I apologize to you, <laughs> but um. But yeah, I mean, it opens up, but I, I'm with you. Like, I honestly think when you tie that portal conversation, what you're saying and why I think we're both fans of it, you know, allowing players who don't like their position on the depth chart or maybe even, you know, they don't like a coordinator change. They don't like a coaching yeah. change or something like that. It allows them to go somewhere else and succeed. And I think you look at it and that's one of the issues I think Alabama is having. You know, you look at, their backfield with uh, Roydell Williams and Jason McCullen, both fine players. They're not bad players. Don't get me wrong. They're both fine running backs. But you have someone who was once a five-star like Trey Sanders who transferred to TCU because he didn't like, you know, splitting carries at Alabama. And granted, he's not been a world beater for TCU, but like he has that flexibility now and Alabama mm-hmm. no longer has that depth. So I'm with you. I think it really does level the playing field more so than I think a lot of uh, detractors from the transfer portal will give it credit for. It it levels the player playing field into a wider playing field. It still excludes like half of FBS, but oh, FBS yes. is too big anyway. So like that's a that's an FBS issue. But I think there it's not a coincidence that this year we look at the college football landscape and legitimately it's not a twelve team playoff yet, but there might be twelve teams right now in in the top twelve that you look at and go like, no, legitimately, I mean, these teams could all compete for the national title. And I don't think that has been the case for in previous years quite as often as as it should have been in a more even playing field. And I mean, you also look, you know, just obviously we don't have college football playoff rankings, but the AP top 25, the top six teams, half of them have a transfer at quarterback. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Quarterback. Yeah. And so like, I, I, I agree with your assessment. It's not le- like it's not widespread parity, but I think like in terms of like college football playoff contenders, it's widened the field for that to where it's not just, oh, look, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, whoever. Like it's not the same five to six teams every single year. Like I understand yeah. there are big brands that are still benefiting from this, but it's not it feels less detrimental than I'm sure a lot of detractors would say. Yeah, but for sure. we've talked about a lot of big brands. I want to talk about you. I mean, you might be about to mention a brand that's somewhat notable, but with this week four schedule 
like you said, there's a huge game at every time slot. Some time slots, there are multiple. Actually, I'm pretty sure at every one of them, there are multiple big games to watch. So it's a perfect time to bring back the Antonio Banderas Bowl of the week. For those unaware, the Antonio Banderas Bowl is a really dumb joke between me and John Bueller, where it's just you and your Antonio Banderas blow-up doll going to the game together. You're the only two that are going to be there, but you're (laughs) going to have a hell of a time. Well, Alicia is taking Bueller's Antonio Banderas this week. And where are you headed for your Antonio Banderas Bowl of the week? Uh, I am heading for Cal versus Washington. Oh, yeah. And... It's funny that like Washington is in the situation to be in this situation. And that says a lot more about the slate necessarily. But uh, this game is super intriguing to me. It's the 730 game. It's going to be on during USC. So I'm not going to be able to watch it closely, but it will certainly be my second screen. And I think it's going to be a sneaky, a sneaky good game to watch in the sense of I can't be the only person out there looking at Washington and thinking, my God, Washington looks unstoppable right now. And somebody please go out and show me that they might have a a, a, a crack in the armor or something like that, because (laughs) I sure haven't seen it yet. And I would my anxiety when it comes to USC would certainly be lessened if it felt like Washington did have a crack in the armor. And I don't know that Cal is not going to beat Washington. No. But Cal, Justin Wilcox is a good defensive coordinator. He's a good defensive mind. Cal always has a defense that that is at least capable of of slowing some people down occasionally. It, it's I think it's an intriguing matchup. It's the first real challenge for for Michael Penix this year to see if if uh, if everything is not going to go his way. Yeah. Um, Cal did an interesting thing against Auburn. Should have beat Auburn, but college kickers so i i don't know what, yeah. what, what not that auburn is any good but you know cal might have a little bit of a pulse here it's packed well after dark like oh I yeah could be, i think this could be a danger i mean not a dangerous spot for washington because i i don't think cal is capable of being washington but like one of those ones where it's it's not completely a blowout by halftime and and i intend to learn a lot about washington because of it so yeah. That's my Antonio Banderas game. So I'm with you. I'm I'm also going to have that game on the second screen late at night. And I don't have any Pac-12 worries to associate with it. (laughs) And so either way this game goes, I'm excited for it. Because if Washington blows them out, Washington, when they're cooking, is a lot of fun to watch. I'm sure as a USC fan, that's not the case. You're probably thinking, holy hell, this USC's defense, if they don't get it together, is going to get absolutely shredded by this. (laughs) But – uh, I do think you bring up a good point. We have not seen Washington like slow down at all this year. Like, and they and they haven't played a cupcake schedule. Like, I understand Michigan State is down, but Michigan State's not a bad football team, and they made light work of them last week. Boise State's not a bad football team; they made light work of them in Week One. And so, you have. I think Justin Wilcox is a good litmus test to see if there is any way to slow this offense down, to slow Michael Penix down, to slow this wide receiver room that feels like it's like 84 players deep where they just roll out one dude after the other. (laughs) And so I think it's a fun game to see Justin Wilcox match up with that because Justin Wilcox, even though Cal may not have the results to prove for it, he's very good at uglying things up. 
And we haven't seen Washington have to play through things getting uglied up yet. Yeah. And so I think that could be really interesting. I'm going to the great state of Texas for my Antonio Banderas Bowl a week. And we're going to the Iron Skillet battle. And for those of you who don't know, SMU and TCU in the DFW rivalry game, they play for the Iron Skillet trophy. Um, A, it's the best trophy in college football for my money. <laughs> um, the legend has it, according to Wikipedia, the always trusted source, that in the 40s, an SMU fan was cooking frog legs in the tailgate in an iron skillet. And a TCU fan took offense to this, and they basically made a bet that whoever won the game would get the iron skillet. And that's how it started. Amazing college football story. That is everything <laughs> weird and stupid that we love about this sport. But I'm actually excited for the football as well. Um, people will look back at this SMU or look back already at this SMU uh, Oklahoma game that we saw where Oklahoma won 28-11. That was a three-point game in the fourth quarter. It was a very close game. It was an ugly game. But SMU actually outgained Oklahoma in that game as well by two yards. And you're looking at an offensive coordinator and or a head coach in Rhett Lashley, who has been a great offensive mind for a long time. And you look at this TCU defense that I think people are underrating how notably worse they are from last year. And they're kind of writing off the Colorado game as Colorado things. I think it might also be a TCU thing. And I'm really intrigued as, so SMU is one of the teams that I had circled as a potential, like, you know, group of five team that's going to get that new year six bid for the group of five. And I think this is kind of one of those spots where they can absolutely prove that against a big 12 opponent. I think that the defense for SMU is improved. I think Chandler Morris, quite frankly, stinks. Um, and he's also <laughs> very mistake prone. And so I think that, I mean, SMU is the underdog in this game. The game is in or at TCU. And I think it's going to be really intriguing to see a group of five power this season, I should say, that's going to be headed to the ACC next year. I think it's going to be really intriguing to see how they handle this moment. And if that, if they can kind of turn the narrative about themselves from that Oklahoma game, that if you were, you know, if you're just box score scouting in terms of the final score and Dylan Gray, Dylan Gabriel's final numbers, you're probably thinking, Oh, Oklahoma just kind of cruise controlled this wasn't the case. And I think SMU puts it on display against the TCU team. That is a lot worse than Oklahoma, in my opinion, and doing so in, in Fort Worth, I think is going to be really fascinating to see. So yeah, that's where I'm taking the Antonio Bender. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Uh, I we used to have a, a saying about uh, during the the peak the uh, sorry the Clay Helton era. We talked about how like we would just love to be Big Twelve bad sometimes. Like oh yeah, <laughs> we would just rather have a game where it just felt like it doesn't matter how good the team is. It's just so long as it's Big Twelve bad, which is highly entertaining. Right. Um, Patrick Mahomes, Texas Tech is the epitome of Big 12 bad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I feel like you had me at SMU TCU as like that. I don't know if either of those teams are particularly good or, or, or will do anything of note this year. But I can tell you already that will be an entertaining as all hell game. Like that's prime. Yes. Like that that's Big Twelve football. That's you tune in for the friggin' Horn Frogs and and uh smu going in there and just see what happens because i guarantee you something will happen in that game that's 
it's like the 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 opposite of what you get when you get like the the lower tier um like Big Ten matchups where it's like you could not pay me to watch Purdue and Rutgers. But at the moment you mentioned that SMU is involved in a game or the moment that you mentioned that TCU is involved in the game, I am there. I am oh, there. Yeah. Both of those teams deliver consistently entertainment, if nothing else. So, yeah, I'm in. And you also have the Sonny Dykes factor, which I forgot to mention, which former SMU yes. coach now at TCU. So that, <laughs> that adds even more. You know, they're going to be – I don't know what they're going to put in the iron skillet, but it's going to be good. So – when we were talking, you were talking about Washington and I, you know, my rebuttal, I mentioned Michigan State, you know, a little bit of turmoil happening in East Lansing right now. Just a little bit. Um, Mel Tucker, he gone. Um, and rightfully so. Good riddance. Bad dude. Yeah. Don't like him. Um, but uh, for any for those who don't know, um, Mel Tucker was fired with cause or is in the process of being fired. I don't think it's official official yet, but. Uh, with cause, so they're going to avoid his. I think it's seventy six million. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but seventy six million dollars buyout. I heard. Yeah, yeah. So they're avoiding that buyout because they're firing with cause for uh, sexual harassment of a activist against sexual assault and rape in athletic culture, which yeah. is just, just what the hell. But it, it, I, it, point blank, he got fired for being the biggest idiot alive. Yeah. And yeah, so that's where we're at. But I think that even before this happened, the general college football fan at our, you know, at a high level who pays attention to a lot of stuff had kind of grown sour on Mel Tucker at Michigan State before that. They were wondering what the buyout was anyway, just because since 2021, when he had Kenneth Walker, you know, as a transfer come in and just light the world on fire, this team's been average at best, bad at others. And that's not what we really saw for the bulk of the Mark D'Antonio era, you know, and this is a team that has the ability to not necessarily be on the Ohio State Michigan level consistently, obviously not, but to have those cycles where once every three or four years, they're popping into that conversation to scare those teams, those programs, those rivals. And so I think this is a job that's now open that has a lot of upside but I'm curious, when you look at like the landscape of college football, what kind of hire and who do you have in mind that could potentially, I guess for bat- lack of a better term, save Michigan State from itself? I mean, the obvious answer is Deion Sanders, <laughs> which would be the funniest outcome and absolutely 0% chance of that happening. Um, the second funniest outcome would be, and I say this with all due respect, Clay Helton. Because the thing about Clay Helton is like, and I can, I can say this with some, with more certainty than I can say about most. I try not to judge the character of like college football coaches because I don't know. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have the full picture on any of them, but I can say with some certainty, like Clay Helton is a good man who is not going to embarrass your university because of scandals that were by his hand. Like, that if if Michigan State wants somebody who can go in there and just not be a wreck, which maybe is what they need, they could do a hell of a lot worse than Clay Helton. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. They need an adult uh, in the room more than anything. That, in the and that's world. the thing. USC needed an adult in the room, and they got it with Clay Helton. And uh, I'm not going to say that was a super fun experience for USC fans, but also it was better than what 
what had happened before. So right. there's that. They weren't tarmacking uh, people anymore. Precisely. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's this, an underrated way to be is to not be firing your head coach on the tarmac. Um, if they wanted to take a swing, like if Michigan State could now that that buyout's gone and they can go to their boosters and say like give us as much money as possible like if they could swing getting brian hartline from ohio state that to me would be the biggest home run that they could possibly achieve because i think uh it's going to be hard to convince somebody to make a lateral move to michigan state at this point so your your sort of window is limited i was thinking about um kaylin DeBoer. At Washington. Kalen DeBoer is smart enough to not make that move. But then I thought, okay, if you're Michigan State, instead of getting Kalen DeBoer, why don't you maybe try to recreate the Kalen DeBoer hire? Um, And by that, I mean somebody who is having like success as a coordinator at the FBS level, somebody who has had success as a head coach at a lower level you know, sort of FCS level. So maybe like Texas defensive coordinator, Jeff Choate, or however you say his name. Yeah. I think that would be a really interesting hire for Michigan state in the sense that they need a few things. They need somebody who can recruit competitively. That's going to be very difficult given their circumstances. So they need somebody who maybe has stably done it before somewhere yeah and that i i feel like using kaylin DeBoer as an example that would be the big argument to go into texas and see if they can if they can pull uh choke so i don't know that was i, I was there are no good answers for michigan state because every every coach i looked at i was like well why would he take the job though so a fair you know, point it's 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 definitely tough in that capacity because it's such a dumpster fire of a situation right now that because i mean regardless of how he you know is departing the program he tucker mel tucker did not leave it in a good spot and that's the tough part about it and so it's i mean it's not a like complete rebuild because there is still a michigan state brand but that brand is tarnished and it's not particularly good right now i i actually really i hadn't thought about the choke hire but i like that i at the very, I don't know if he, I, you know, I don't know if he would be a good head coach. We have no way of knowing that. But at the same time, I do think that might be the right thought process, and not one that I was necessarily using when I was considering candidates. So my first thought was honestly just bring back D'Antonio. I mean, it, that's not a bad option if he's willing. If he's willing, but I'm not sure if he's willing because a his the circumstances around his departure, they called it a retirement, were a bit. A bit funky. Yeah, a bit curious. But I do think that, you know, Michigan State football, specifically football, was not having cultural issues, was not having issues with performance under D'Antonio. So why not go back to someone who was on that staff, Mike Tressel, who is currently the D.C. at Wisconsin for Luke Fickle and was also his D.C. at Cincinnati. I think that a you have a very intimate familiarity with the Michigan State program, which is a very obviously a plus. And I think something that more importantly, I think it's he has a familiarity with Michigan State football success and like 
how a program that's running functionally looks. And so I think yeah. that's a positive first and foremost. On top of that, Cincinnati's defenses, when they were there, were very good, and they were great at identifying talent that may have been overlooked. You look at someone like Sauce Gardner, who they recruited to Cincinnati and got him there, and he was a top-10 draft pick and is one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. And that's the type of player, when Michigan State was firing on all cylinders as a program, that's the type of player they were getting. You know, they were getting that type of guy where you're identifying talent early, getting in there, and maybe, you know – playing on the margins and recruiting very well. And I think Trestle has enough familiarity from all of his stops to be able to do that. I don't know if he would want to leave Fickle in Wisconsin because Fickle's obviously done a lot for him over the past few years. Like they're very connected, but I think it is an interesting thought process. And on top of that, the Trestle name holds some weight in the big 10. Let's just be honest about that. Like, I feel bad. For, I still feel bad for my guy Jim Tressel, who got fired over some tattoos. Like my yeah. <laughs> God, what a what a world we used to live in in college football for that to have happened. Um, but I, I think Mike Tressel is probably where I land as my number one. But I do, like I said, I like your thought process of trying to replicate the Kalen DeBoer hire in a way of like someone who's done it at every every stop that they've been at and deserves an opportunity to more or less like try and translate that to a larger scale. Yeah, um, I I think the the biggest problem for Michigan State is convincing somebody to to take that job. That yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't take that job. No, absolutely not. Mostly because I don't want to live in East Lansing, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I've I've, I've never lived in Big Ten country, and yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But staying on the coaching circle, and funny enough that we're talking about who would take that job. Hey. Uh, uh, maybe he would, um, a few years ago, I say a few, it was a a year or two ago, Matt Campbell was probably the hottest head coaching name in the world. It's like, look at what he's done with Iowa state. You know, the Brock Purdy, Brees Hall years, Iowa state having historically successful seasons for the Cyclones. Now the Cyclones are a joke. They just got, they just lost on the road at Ohio, not Ohio state, Ohio, the Bobcats which I love the Bobcats. That's maxion for life, but not exactly where you want the Iowa State program and not what you expect from Matt Campbell, given how bright his star had gotten there for a little while. But what made it worse was after the game, a video surfaced of an Iowa State fan heckler yelling at Campbell that he was now on the hot seat. And then Campbell had to have the old hold me back from either security or assisting. I'm not sure who it was, but someone was having to hold the head coach of Iowa State back from getting either I don't know if it's physically assaulting or verbally accosting this Iowa State fan, but I guess where I come down with this is, and where I want to ask you is, has there ever been like a bigger bag fumble of be honestly being able to take any open job you would have wanted when you when Matt Campbell was at the peak of his you know popularity in terms of head coaching circles to now you're about to fight a fan after a loss to Ohio. (laughs) You were a security guard grabbing you away from getting fired for cause for throwing a punch at a fan. Like, like, what are you, what are you doing, man? I, I don't know. No, I don't know that there has been a bigger fumble. I I can tell you straight up. Like I would have bitten your hand off to get my Matt Campbell to come to USC when USC had the opening. 
there was legitimate talk of NFL teams trying to yeah. move Matt Campbell away from Iowa State. And it was just like, why is Matt, Ca- Matt Campbell not taking these jobs? Um, I, Hey, Matt Campbell might be, if I'm Michigan State and I'm looking at what's going on at Iowa State, I, I got to go talk to Matt Campbell for a second here because they could certainly do worse than that. But right. that video maybe doesn't... That doesn't um, <laughs> Yeah, for a for a program that's trying to fix its culture, I'm not sure that that's that's the uh, application that you want to see. Yeah, maybe <laughs> is that disqualifying? Even fumbling <laughs> the bag even more, I, right? I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I. I mean, Iowa State what? is definitely in a position where this this season specifically, like. Yeah, I mean, with the gambling stuff that went on and all the suspensions, like he's without his starting who what was supposed to be his starting quarterback and starting running back. And this was already supposed to be an average at best Iowa State team before that happened. And so, like, I understand he's probably in a very frustrated spot, but that's why you leave a job like Iowa State. And that's why, like, I'm with you. There's never been a bigger back fumble than this. Like, Iowa State is a program where – when Campbell had that team cooking with Purdy, with Brees Hall, with all these, you know, hot, like some of the best players in Iowa State history, um, when he had everything churning there, that's a moment where you capitalize. And he should have realized that and should have done so because Iowa State is not a program that has ever shown any semblance of being able to maintain that level of success, that level of talent acquisition. And so how you don't leave that job and then end up in a position where you are this for like, there's no way you could have foreseen the gambling stuff coming. Like when yeah. Matt Campbell was a hothead country na- coaching name, I'm not sure like online sports betting was legal in the state of Iowa. Like I, there's no way you could have seen it coming, but like they weren't a good team last year when they didn't have the gambling position or suspensions. So I think it was already a bad fumble last year and it's just looking worse and worse as it goes on to where I think you honestly have to be talking about Matt Campbell as a hot seat candidate. That's the thing is the fan was not wrong. Right. No, I, I don't know that Iowa state's in a position to actually fire. Like who, who are you going to actually get? That's better than Matt Campbell Like the, Correct. That, to be true, but that doesn't mean we can't put Matt Campbell on the hot seat. If he keeps losing games, if he keeps having these, these situations come up, He's certainly more on the hot seat because of that interaction to me than than not. Um, it it just like you said, it was always going to be very very difficult to sustain success at Iowa State. You're just not going to recruit that many dudes mm-hmm. come to Ames. It's just not going to happen. And you had NFL talent, and we found out even better than anyone thought. Brock Purdy and Brees Hall. Mm-hmm. when he's healthy he's looks like an nfl talent um once you lost those guys the chance of getting players of that caliber again to come to ames like right. you locked into those, those like th- that situation and uh didn't see the writing on the wall that you weren't going to be able to to sustain that and and move on so that's I don't know. He, he just he fumbled the bag, man. There's 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 no other way to say it. You're, you're looking at. <laughs> think about the contract he could he could have gotten some ten million dollars a year somewhere. I mean, bringing it back to Mel Tucker, look at the contract Mel Tucker signed for one good season, and then think yeah. about where Matt Campbell was in terms of public perception and college football perception. He like 
that Mel Tucker deal is not off the table for some program that's desperate for someone to come and save them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's an enormous bag fumble. Thankfully, you and I did not fumble the bag today. <laughs> and that is the important part. Alicia, thank you for coming and filling in and talking about this dumb sport, this dumb, dumb, beautiful sport that we love so much. Um, you can find mine and Alicia stuff always on fansided.com. We work hard. We're Alicia is really good at what she does. I'm halfway decent. So <laughs> that's the important part. Uh, thank you for listening. Join us next week. This is False Start.